Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. How many of you, your favorite season is the fall? Okay, yes, I love the fall. Uh, well, let's get into uh, this passage. I want to thank Sal. Give it up for Sal for uh, reading the Word of God to us. Actually, before I do that, I want to thank Pastor Ken for speaking for me. Uh, I was writing out my message late Saturday night, last Saturday night, and uh, my wife came down with a fever, and all my kids were sick, and I'm like, Dad, it's your turn. Good luck. And, uh, but he is um, our founding pastor, and he's amazing. Isn't he amazing? Lord have mercy. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Well, when it comes to this story, uh, I think outside maybe Jesus eating on the shores of Galilee, eating breakfast, that is. How many of you enjoy breakfast? So I think one of my favorite stories is Jesus eating breakfast uh, with his disciples on the shores of Galilee. I love that story because it reminds me that this world of space and time and our continuum of, of just stuff and reality and breakfast and eggs and bacon, all the good things that we enjoy. Apparently all of you are vegans here this morning. But all the things in this world matters. Bodily resurrection is connected to Jesus eating breakfast, which is connected to heaven now colliding to earth, which is then connected to meaning and purpose, which means that you and I are not just random, arbitrary, autonomous creatures walking around with no purpose. You are not a tragic mistake. You're not a cosmic accident. That's what I love about the story, the bodily resurrection. I, and man, I, I preach on this all the time, but I love that story. And perhaps, you know, Jesus calming the Mediterranean storm might be one of my favorite stories as well. Uh, like that storm was a two-year-old throwing um, a fit. I wish I had that ability of Jesus to calm my family down. So those are some of my favorite stories. But outside of those stories... I think this story of Jesus cleansing the temple might be one of my favorites. In fact, if you're to look at all four Gospels, we'll call it fancy talk, the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I think they all agree that this story of Jesus cleansing the temple is extraordinarily important to understanding Jesus, who he is, and what is he doing as Tyler Staten uh, points out, this story is in all four Gospels. It's one of only five stories that are included in all four Gospel biographies, which are placed in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Meaning, this story of Jesus cleansing the temple is not an arbitrary event. It actually gives us an inside look into the kingdom of God. It shows us the very heart of God's dream for creation itself. But for me, the most um, remarkable aspect of this story is how Jesus violates, everyone say violates, violates the rules of sacred space. If you don't know anything about the temple, the temple is um, a, a little cosmos or a uh, miniature representation of the cosmos. It's where it, it, it represents where heaven and earth get all entangled together. It's where God meets with his people. And this is key for really my whole thesis of this message. The temple is sacred space. And Jesus, as he cleanses it, violates every rule of this thin place, this sacred place. First, what I, man, we can't forget, or we should forget, let me say it this way. When we're reading this story, we have to forget about Jesus being meek and mild. Like Jesus is like that perfect hair guy. Bougie, little bougie. Come on, like a, um, some gentle, like silhouetted Christ figure with a nice tan 
who has adopted paganism and really just wants you to believe in yourself. Let's give all that stuff, that nonsense up, right? That's what New Yorkers believe in Jesus. I'm kidding. Is Jesus just a nice, perfect hair guy, bougie, right? Ah, you know, just really gentle. He is gentle. I believe that. Did he adopt a pecan diet? Maybe. I don't know. But we got to forget about Jesus being meek and mild because this story shows us that Jesus stages a demonstration explosive with anger. I mean, he throws out the bankers and the economists. He turns over and you got to, when you read stories in the Bible, you got to use your holy imagination you got to put yourself in, in the situation of whatever, whatever story you're, you're reading. Jesus is throwing and flipping tables over. I, I, you got to imagine money and coins lay, lay everywhere. There's controlled chaos as Jesus uh, challenges the temple guardians over the misuse of the temple cultists. You gotta, what, what is going on? Has anyone, has anyone ever witnessed a fight in real life? Few of you, some of you, I see it in your eyes. You want me to ask a question. Have you been in a fight? <laughs> Has your pastor been in a fight? Yeah, I've been in a couple fights. I can handle. I work out, right? <laughs> it's funny. I was talking to a buddy of mine, and we, and make a long story short, we got done golfing, and we had a professional boxer friend with us, and we went to a restaurant, and we had some, like, distant acquaintances that came in after us. They were sitting at a table, and then they lost it. And they just started fighting and they lost their minds and they're hitting each other's blood everywhere. I'm looking over to my professional boxer friend. He's just eating chicken wings. <laughs> he doesn't even care. But what's interesting about fighting, I'm like, hey, Cleveland, can you do something about this? Use that left and let's, you know, because they actually, and I'm not joking, one, one person actually flew across our table and he's not doing anything. And I'm like, um, Cleveland, can you, can you do something, right? It's funny, when we witness a fight, you... Many of us, not me, because, you know, I'm, I'm a fighter. It's psychologically, I just love, I love, I love messing with you. Uh, psycholo it's psychologically stunning. Like, if you, see, if you see another human hurt another human, you should, your first visceral reaction should be a sense of disgust, right? So, I, I think this is controlled chaos. Money's all over the place. People are being thrown out of the temple, which is sacred space. Jesus is violating all the rules. And he's challenging the temple guardians, the guardians of this cosmos or the galaxy, whatever you want to say, however you want to say it. He's challenging them over the misuse of the temple. Let me say this really quick about anger. Um, I think there's an appropriate time to get angry. Ephesians tells us, be angry and do not sin. Here, here, let me say this really quick, just as a qualifier. Jesus is not some proto-Marxist who wants to burn society down. Nor is he a hardline hawk revolutionary or nationalist that wants to um, withdraw from society because of their rage over everything. See, Jesus defies every category that we want to put on him. Can I get an amen to that? But Jesus is angry. He's righteously angry. And anger is different than contempt. Anger is self-limiting, right? Ephesians tells us that don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So what's wrath, or excuse me, what's contempt? Contempt is treating someone less than human. Contempt works with accusation, slander, libel, right? Anger is an offshoot of God's love. Anger is, is saying that there are things that are not, or there are things that are that should not be. And out of love, you give expression to things that are that should not be, and we call that anger. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Let me just say this really quick as your pastor. I think we should be angry about what's happening to our world right now. We shouldn't be losing our minds. Like, let's stockpile our guns. 
and let's get angry at the world, right? No, I don't think that's an appropriate response. If you like guns, I'm not saying anything against or for guns. I'm just not a gun guy. But the point that I want to make is that anger, we should be righteously anger of, over what's happening uh, to our country and to the nations of the world. Yeah? No? Yes. Okay. Um, I, I think it's important for me to, to say this, but the political machinery in D.C. is broken, and we should be angry over it. Yes. Oh, no, he's talking politics and church. No, I'm not, I'm not siding with any side. I'm just saying left, right, up, down. The political machinery in Washington, D.C. is broken. I'm giving you a biblical perspective. Not only that, our education system is broken. I could go down the line of things that are broken in our nation. So I think there are some things that we should get angry about. So Jesus is angry as he cleanses the temple. A poor man's version of the cleansing of the temple, uh, just for, for an example, would be like someone entering the, the outer part of the White House uh, maybe uh, getting access to the Lincoln bedroom and forcing a symbolic stoppage of our American executive office for a couple of hours. While well, we have secret service, you're probably thinking, and that guy probably wouldn't make it that far, but let's just pretend that guy made it that far. That's somewhat, somewhat of an equivalent of what Jesus is doing in the temple. So then everything settles down, right? And then Jesus begins to teach. Here, I'm going to say this. I was thinking about this and praying about this this morning. I think it's important for us to understand. This is a tangent, but please hear me. Sometimes Jesus has to cleanse our lives before we can hear his voice. Sometimes. Have, have you ever moved into an older home and you want to remodel it, right? You want to fix it up. Before you can live in it, you have to clean it. So there are, there are cultural moments, and I think we're in one of those cultural moments where Jesus, who is at the helm of the cosmos, and I say this every Sunday, is cleansing creation. The good news is, because it feels like Hebrews chapter 12, where everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But thank God we have, or we, we belong to an unshakable kingdom, Right? So we're in that cultural moment where everything is being shaken. Everything that's broken is being exposed, right? Why? Well, because God has to cleanse the pollution of creation. The Bible sees creation as a cosmic temple. God is cleansing it so we, his people, can hear his voice. This is just on an individual level. Some of you wonder why you can't hear God's voice. I'm going to just say this with all respect in the world and with all pastoral love in the world. It could be the case. It really might be the case that your heart is not pure. Now, can God bypass some of that stuff, some of the toxic stuff in our mind and in our heart and stuff? Absolutely. He does that all the stinking time, every single day. But there's a point where you have to make a decision to open up your heart to the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit so you can hear the voice of God. In the next several weeks, we're going to talk about how I think the voice of God in our cultural moment for the church is the most important thing that we need. More than anything else. So Jesus, what does he do? He presumably sits down and then he goes to teaching and he says, my house, in John chapter 2, he says, my father's house, shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have turned it into a den of brigands. Probably a better translation would be revolutionaries. Turned it into a den of revolutionaries. Jesus is quoting two prophetic passages. I won't get into it. Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, respectively. But what Jesus is doing is that he is directing the people's attention to the purpose of the temple. My house. Everyone say, my house. my house. Come on, everyone say, my house. my house. My house shall be called a house 
of prayer. Now, I'm not going to get into the social dimensions of the oracle judge, of judgment that Jesus is referencing to. We could certainly get into that today. I just simply want to talk about what does a house of prayer mean? Doesn't Jesus understand? Can he envision? He's the son of God. That the modern world would have a problematic relationship with prayer? And I say this as a pastor in ministry for well over 25 years. I know I look 39, but I'm a lot older than that. But the modern Western church, I have come to believe, and I say this with all love, doesn't like to pray. We have no appetite for it. My house shall be called the house of what? Prayer? In fact, with all respect, I think our churches or our houses of worship have come to resemble a corporate conglomeration of programs with no capacity for prayer. We have an appetite for endless programs and preferences, but we have a problematic relationship with prayer. House of prayer? Why, why did, why, I mean, of course, Jesus, the Son of God, he, he obviously would understand our historical situation right now in 2021, whatever year we're in. Why would he not choose a house of well-crafted 18-minute TED Talks, sermons that are smart, witty, hilarious, homiletically safe, because Jesus only told Peter, believe in yourself. He would never call him the Satan. It, it, these, these messages would have to be certainly emotive. They would certainly have to lack in depth. And these 18-minute TED Talk-like sermons or messaging or messages would have to lead every individual into a state of therapeutic effervescence. Why aren't our house of prayer or our houses of prayer like that? Or why wouldn't Jesus emphasize that? Right? Or what about a house of beautifully crafted worship sets with lasers. I don't know. Or chore choreographed dances that get us going, right? Or some health, some health, self-help, whatever, guru. Self-help guru, guys. It's seven kids. They mess with your brain. <laughs> A self-help guru comes up and then just gets us going and plants us right in the middle of heaven every single Sunday. Why doesn't Jesus say that about the temple? He doesn't say any of that. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. Let me say this. We don't have an appetite for prayer, though. We, we have an appetite for sermons that are brilliant but have no power. For example, and I'm, I'm talking to my guild, all my pastor friends, and this includes me. There was one pastor that came from overseas. I read this about a decade ago, and he came to America, and someone asked him a question. I can't remember the topic, but this is what he said. Like, if I need help organizing big programs, you know who I'll go to? I'll go to the American pastor. Wow. However... If I need a miracle, I will go somewhere else. My house will not be called, and I believe in the primacy of preaching, but my house shall not be called a house of 18-minute TED Talks that makes us feel therapeutically better about ourselves. My house shall not be a house of beautifully crafted worship sets that plants us into heaven because that's our preference because they played my song, right? I say this all the time, but there was one lady who uh, went to the pastor after, not this church, because you guys are amazing, another church came to a pastor and was really frustrated with the song choice of the worship experience that one given Sunday morning. And she met the pastor in the lobby and she's filled with disgust. And she said, I did not like worship today. And the pastor responded to her in love and said, thank God worship's not about you. Why prayer? Why prayer? Prayer is problematic for many of us. I've had... 20 years of ministry experience, which suggests prayer is not ranked high on our spiritual list of needs. 
community is, fellowship is, like we need each other, and I, I believe that should be on the list of our spiritual needs. Can I get an amen to that? We need thick relationships. We need each other. If anything, if anything, if anything over the last year and a half has told us something is that, man, life alone is, is, is it's worthless. We need each other. Good preaching is needed. I, and I, again, as I mentioned, uh, primacy of preaching, I believe in the primacy of preaching. Uh, good marriages, marriage ministry is high. We need to have good ministry or marriage ministries. I believe there's a strong correlation between broken homes and a broken society. And so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about and we'll preach about good marriages. It's so important. We need to have great worship experiences. We, yes, we need well-planned programs. Like these are all high on our spiritual list of needs. Yes, there are justice causes that, that God has put in your heart that, that has um, uh, really consumed you. It's your vision. It's your raison d'etre, whatever. Those are important. But as your pastor, I'm going to be really honest with you this morning. Prayer ranks at the bottom of our spiritual list of needs. And yet Jesus and the early church had it at the top. It's funny, my dad and I, we, we talk about this often. It's when the pastor calls for people to a prayer meeting. It's like when I tell my kids, it's time to go to bed. All they hear is, it's time for you to die. <laughs> we call, we're going to go hang out, man. I'll get, hey, we're going to hang, I'll get a ton of people. We're going to have some good preaching. And I love all this stuff. Please hear me. But we'll get a ton of people for good preaching. And a nice worship experience. But when it comes to prayer, it's like, where do all the people go? You still love me? Here's the thing. Um, we have a problematic relationship with prayer. But the good news is that it's also paradoxical. Because we are all, we are all designed by God to pray. Yeah. It seems self-evident that humans are hardwired for prayer. Right. As one person, uh, and I'm going to quote him, said, human life is made up of unending chorus of human longing, uh, of sighs and cries and chiming bells and mutterings in the maternity wards, celestial oratorials and scribbled graffiti. What he means is prayer is our native language. In fact, our English word prayer derives from the Latin precarious. We pray because life is filled with trouble. We pray because life is filled with crisis. We pray because life is filled with also beauty and hope and meaning. But we pray because it seems like we are hardwired for pray, prayer. We pray when we go to McDonald's and we ask God to keep us safe. <laughs> this is a common prayer trope, but when we go shopping every now and then, we ask God for a Good spark parking spot, right? Again, I, I just hit puberty, apparently, so. We sigh and we pray whenever we see an ambulance, at least I do, weaving in and out of traffic because it reminds us of our fragility of life. Some of you, you might be here this morning and you're like, I don't believe in this hypothetical deity called God. Chris, I'm an atheist and and. Hey, that's fine, and man, I love that. I love you, respect you, but I just want to make an argument that you are a prayerer. We pray. In fact, someone who claimed to be an atheist in her 20s had a baby, and one night as she was looking at her baby sleeping, something came over her, a sense of wonder and gratitude. Overwhelmed, she whispered in the dark, thank you. She soon became a Christian and has followed Jesus over the last 30 years. You, you, I, I, there's a lot of stuff I want to do right now, but I can't. You are a prayerer. Or if you want me to go old school on you, you are a prayer warrior. <laughs> Guys, I am not even here this morning. <laughs> prayer is 
the universal longing of the human heart. It is our native language. So the question that we have to, to ask and answer is what is prayer? What is a house of prayer? And this is my thesis. A house of prayer is a house of presence. I think more than programs, as essential as programs are, more essential is the presence of the Holy Spirit. So how do we even grasp a house of prayer for all the nations. Is that just an activity that we do? Does that mean we have to like bear insufferably long services of prayer, five hours long? Does that mean that's an invitation to get weird? Like Chris, like, and I'm talking to church folk, right? Because a lot of us have just church baggage when it comes to prayer and understanding of a house of prayer. I just want to clear the weeds this morning and give us a perspective of what is a house of prayer. And we come to Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. And I think, as then we'll move into Leviticus, I think these two chapters help us understand what Jesus is talking about. Do we have those? Yeah. Exodus 40, verse 34 through 38. There we have it. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night in sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. But it says, I think I might have missed it, but it says that Moses could not enter. It seems like, follow me. Can I just do a little bit of teaching? I know I'm kind of just teaching this morning. Can I just do a little teaching? I have four people. I need more affirmation. Okay. Moses, it suggests in Exodus chapter 40, Moses is outside the tabernacle. Moses, Moses, Moses. You find a better guy than Moses outside of Jesus. Yeah, come and talk to me. I want to know him. Moses could not enter the tent. The suggestion of Exodus chapter 40 is that Moses is expelled from God's presence. In a sense, Moses, in an incorporative way, is polluted by the people. And he cannot enter the presence of God. Here we have an echo. I know I'm teaching, but just please hear, hear me out. An echo of Adam being expelled from the garden. So Moses is like the, the dude that can't get in the party. That the, the, the bouncer, right? This is not even my world, but the bouncer is right outside the club. And you hear the music, right? And people are lighting it up. I don't even know what I'm talking about, right? And then you get up and the bouncer says, no, you ain't getting in, right? This is... Moses cannot get in. This is equivalent to that. Moses cannot get in to the presence of God. So we have this crisis. Then we come to Leviticus chapter 1. I want to read this to you, just two verses. It says, Then the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. There's a lot that's in there that I can't get in today. You won't allow me to speak for four hours, okay? You only give me 35. I don't know what's wrong with you. I go 55 anyways, just to spite you. But, here, but, but this, remember, at the end of Exodus 40, 
Moses can't enter. Leviticus chapter one, God calls Moses from inside the tabernacle and gives him instructions about the offerings. The term offering is built from a Hebrew root word, which means to draw near. All of this is to say the central tragic event of biblical history is the expulsion of humans from the garden and the presence of God. And here is the thing. When you lose the presence of God, please hear me. When you lose the presence of God, you lose your purpose. When you lose the presence of God, you lose your purpose. When you lose the garden, right? Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. They lost their purpose. What was their purpose? Their purpose was to be a king and priest, to work in partnership with the creator, in, to, to steward all of creation in, in love and, and wisdom. In essence, Adam is an excommunicated priest and his lineage, I, could, man, I wish I could flesh this out this morning, but we can't, but his lineage tries, we even see this in primeval, primeval, primeval history, I'm gonna try to talk this morning, in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, what are they trying to do? They build a pyramid so they wanna get into the heavens. What are they trying to do? They're trying on their own terms to get back into the garden because the garden was seen as a mountain temple cosmic thing. And so human civilization in statecraft and culture and art and sports and entertainment at the, at the bottom of it all is trying to get in back into the garden on its own terms. This is the central tragic event of biblical history. We have lost the presence of God. And in losing the presence of God, we have lost our purpose. If you were to summarize Old Testament thinking and expectation, it is none other than how to get back inside the garden with God. This is what the tabernacle represents. If you go through Leviticus, Leviticus shows us a miniature garden. In fact, Leviticus gives us a, a, a visual tour of the tabernacle, and one of its main features is a menorah. The menorah is a stylized tree of life. Where was the tree of life? In the garden. We have cherubim in the sanctum, in the inner place. I never thought I would be teaching on the tabernacle, but I am this morning, Pastor Ken. In the sanctum, in the inner place, what the cherubim are guarding the, the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes the presence of God, the most holy presence of God. Where do you find cherubim in the garden? You find cherubim guarding the east entrance of the garden. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, 8 through 9, are you still with me? Yahweh, this is the phraseology, Yahweh was walking to and fro in Eden. This same phrase is used in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 17 in describing the tabernacle and God's dream to walk among his people again. In other words, a house of prayer is not just a place of activity of prayer, and it certainly is, but it's way more larger than that. A house of prayer for all the nations is where God's dream of walking among the nations is in unbroken fellowship is realized. So the question is, what does Jesus fight for in the temple and why did Jesus die on the cross? He died on the cross and he fought in the uh, temple and through, do we have music? Yes, and then we lost it. And then I'm like, am I hearing things? You can play whenever you want to play. That's amazing. I just want to make sure I wasn't losing my mind, okay? Jesus threw the tables and threw out the bankers and the economists and challenged the temple guardians. Jesus gave his life. Why? Why? So he could restore the temple is a house of prayer for all the nations. In other words, in the words of one pastor who I respect a lot, what Jesus was fighting for was for you and I to have a seat at the table. He was, hey, bouncer dude, Larry, scoot over. Let the people come in and hang out with all the lasers and all the 
I, I'm, I just, that's weird, okay? Anyways, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is, through his death and through his resurrection, he is restoring creation as a cosmic temple. What does that mean? That he's inviting the nations to take a seat at the table. He's saying a house of prayer is a space where we walk with God again. Prayer, in other words, is where the Trinitarian community of inexpressible joy and delight invites you to be with him. An unbroken fellowship with him. See, you think you're longing for that thing is really um, what you want? Yes and no. The longing of every human heart is not just to get married. The longing of every, every human heart, not just to make money, not just to have significance, not just to have meaning. The longing of every human heart is to get back into the garden, to be in the presence of God. That's the ultimate longing that drives all these other little longings that we have. And you will quickly find out when you get married, your spouse is not perfect. And they, they ain't the garden of God. Even the best marriages, right, have problems. And if you build a marriage, if you build a marriage on just communication and practical tools alone, you will never have a marriage that God has designed for you. Your life, your marriage, your family, raising your family, your career, the thing that God has called you to depends absolutely on the presence of God in your life. It depends absolutely on you taking a seat at the table of the Trinitarian community of self-giving love, of delight and joy that you can't even imagine. Could you imagine right now the Trinitarian community? Don't imagine because it's the truth, right? Not to pit truth and imagination against each other. They're, they're, they're closer. They work together more than we realize. The point that I want to make is that the Trinitarian community of self-giving love is inviting everyone in this room through Jesus and his work on the cross to take a seat at the table and do, could you, oh my gosh, could you imagine that? Psalm 23, right? In the presence of my enemies, he has built out a table for me. Man, I was hoping that would get a lot more amens this morning. Prayer first is not an activity, rather it is the architect of time, prioritizing time through his son to be in an unbroken fellowship with you. God the Father, Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit want to have an interactive conversation with you. To be a house of prayer is to be a house, a house of presence. To be a house of prayer is to be a house of presence. Not just good programs, not just good preaching, not just like good guitaring, right? It's not even a word. I'm making stuff up. Not just like good fellowship, right? Good barbecue and the pastor incessantly talking about the Dallas Cowboys, right? No, my house should be called a house of the presence of God. I just know one thing. We're not going to out-program the world. Hey, hey. I, I think we can build some of the best programs in our church. I, I believe that. But what will make us distinct is not programs. It's the presence of Jesus. You see, a generation, I, I'm, I'm, this, is my, this is my soapbox, guys. We are living in a generation that is tired of the word excellence. And so we just kind of assume, okay, in order for people to get saved, we got to do everything with excellence. And I believe in the word excellence. 
But I believe a generation is so tired of the familiar. They see, we live in the United States of America, unrivaled, the United States of America is unrivaled in human civilization for its wealth and excellence. And what has it got us? We're living in a generation that wants more than excellence. They're familiar with excellence. They want something that they're not familiar with. They want truth. They want reality. They want hope and meaning. If we're just offering good programs, and again, I'm not saying anything against good programs, but if that's all we're offering, man, what makes us different than anyone else? In fact, Moses said, God, we need your tabernacling presence, which represents the garden of God and God walking among his people. Moses said, and if you don't go in front of us, I don't care. I'm, I don't care. I don't care. Just take, take me. If you don't go with us, your presence is not with us. I'm done. Because it's your presence that gives us purpose. It's your presence that brings meaning and shapes meaning in us and gives us a sense of what we're supposed to do. It is the presence of God that illuminates our darkness when we have no idea what we're supposed to do or we we have a big decision that we have to make. It is the presence of God that illuminates our thinking and our mind and helps us to see the light in a dark world. Come on, somebody. It is the presence of God when we've been given a bad diagnosis that equips us with the strength and the ability to handle it, to handle suffering. If you don't have the presence of God, you cannot handle suffering. If you don't have the presence of God, you cannot handle trials. If you don't have the presence of God, you cannot handle the season that we're in. What the church needs is not just better messages, and I think that's great. What the church needs is not just better worship, and I think that's great. What we need is the presence of God walking among us on a Sunday, and on a Monday, and a Tuesday, and a Wednesday, and a Thursday, and a Friday. And even a Saturday. Come on, somebody. I'm, I'm, I'm just sat, I'm dissatisfied with, dissatisfied with old church. The church before the pandemic, I'm going to just say this as I close, is dead. It's dead. Us just trying to, and we're going we're gonna to be, I'm so relational, guys. I don't think I'm weird. You might think I'm weird, but I'm not. I'm a normal guy. But the, but the days of trying to simply reduce the gospel to like relevance, it's over. Hey, check, check me out. Like I, I, I'm wearing the same sneakers as you. Jesus is cool. Accept them. Please. Those days are over. Those days are over. People, man, people, 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 people. I just, I can feel it in the streets. People want reality. People want a story bigger than themselves. They want to go beyond. Why why do we have all these programs on TV and movies? They're all like about getting beyond like our just humdrum life. It's because it's the longing of our cultural moment. We want something more. Church, Jesus is the answer to that. But if we don't have an appetite for this, if we don't have an appetite for the presence of God, an appetite to open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit, to really believe that the architect of time itself prioritizes time to be with us, man, then the church will have no power to reach those who God's called to reach. We're a house of prayer. We're a house of miracles. We're a house of presence. We're a house of healing. Come on, we're a house of wisdom. We're a, we're a house of the prophetic. We're, 
or the house of the impossible. Why? Not because we have what it takes to do all that. We're a house of miracles because the presence of God abides in us. So I, I like, as I close, to talk about what's our practice, what's our response this week. I think it's Acts chapter 2. I'm going to close and I'm going to pray and I'll be done. Acts chapter 2, 2 through 4 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled, everyone say filled, filled, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I'm going to take a controversial passage and make it uncontroversial. Because I think there's something exegetically interesting about this passage. And it's this. Before God fills the people, he fills the place. Before God fills the people, he fills the place. It's almost, he fills the place, he cleanses it, and then he waits for the people, the Trinitarian community, I'm going to keep on saying, of of utter delight. God the Father, Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you have a seat at the table now. Right? He fills the place before he fills the people. The problem is, and I'm going to talk more about this over the next few weeks, is that many of us do not have a place for God to fill. We've adopted common secular assumptions about life. We hurry our way through life. Busy for us is is equivalent to significance. And we've marginalized the presence of God because we have marginalized our prayer time. Our prayer time is about two minutes a day. This is, this is your pastor speaking in love. I'm not judging anyone. I get it. We have rough days. We have, man, hear, please, you hear my heart? But if we want to be a people of the presence of God, if, if we want to be people that walk in the power of God, we have to identify our place. It might be in the car where you're commuting from home to work for 60 minutes and you just turn on worship songs. I don't know what your place is. It could be that. It could be a walk, an hour walk on the green belt. It might be 20 minutes, I don't know, um, right next to your bed before you get on that, that phone. I'm going to go after your phone over the next few weeks, so get ready. And social media. Social media, let me just say this really quick as just a little primer for the next few weeks. Social media will be in 50 years called the new tobacco industry. I guarantee it. So what's your place? That's all I'm asking you. What's your place? If you don't have a place, that's fine. Maybe, again, your place is a chair. Maybe your place is a car. Maybe your place is the kitchen. Maybe your place is a walk around the subdivision. I don't know what your place is, but you need to find a place. Not because God isn't at that place, because God's already in that place. And as you open your heart up to that place, God will fill that place with his presence and fill you with his presence and his power. I want to be a community defined by the presence of God. We will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your presence. I thank you that you would come today and this week and speak to us. More than anything, we need that interactive conversation with the presence of Jesus. More than anything, we need the words of Jesus when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And I just thank you, Father, that today you would come and fill this place with your love, your healing, your miracles, your life. There are people in here today that are confused, Lift off that confusion right now in Jesus' name. There's some people here today that 
you have no sense of purpose. It's almost, I see you almost like going around in circles. Kind of going around in circles and you're not quite sure what, what life is about. I just, right now, I see God opening your heart and your mind and showing you what he's called you to do. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I also pray right now for miracles. As Shane prayed earlier, I thank you. This is a house of prayer, which means this is a house of your presence, which means this is a house of miracles. And I thank you, as Ellen gave me a scripture this morning, which I've been meditating all, all, on all week, is with God, all things are possible. And there's some people here today that you have an impossible situation. And I declare over your impossible situation that with God, all things are possible. And if you need a miracle right now, could you just lift up your hand really quick? I want to pray for you. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, put your hands down. Father, I thank you for that miracle. Lord, miracles are not like, you're not a cosmic vending machine. We're not trying to manipulate outcomes. We're not like, ah, this is my miracle. No, we just know that you are a good, faithful father who wants to bless your kids, your sons and daughters with good things. And so, Father, we thank you for miracle after miracle after miracle to take place in our lives this week in Jesus' mighty name. Okay, let's just wait now for, can we do this just for 30 seconds? Is this okay? Keep your eyes closed. Take your hand, put on your heart. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.